0: On October 27th, 1989, a young woman receives a phone call from a man claiming to be a co-worker of her mother. He somehow convinces her to meet at a mall to buy a gift for a so-called promotion. That girl is never seen again and what unfolds to be one of the most famous cases ever covered by this podcast. You're listening to the Mysterious Brews podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Amy Mahalovic.
1: 1989, 10-year-old Amy Maholovic vanishes from the Bay Square Shopping Center. If there are candles burning all over, she's got to come down. She's got to come down. But Amy... Never came back.
0: She spotted something in the field and checked, and it was a body.
1: Amy's body found in a wheat field, 106 days after she disappeared.
0: There were stab wounds to the left
1: side of the neck. A family devastated. We don't have anything else to say except thank you, Cleveland. November 2005. The killer is still out Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement. Somewhere in the bowels of Georgia, coach is on cloud nine because his volunteers are up thirty eight nothing at the half, and he's giddy I mean, as a schoolgirl.
0: I mean, a quality team in Ball State. Let me tell you, you don't just you just can't take them to the woodshed. No,
1: you, know. you can't.
0: Got to be a really good.
1: I mean, you got to bear down mentally.
0: Proud <laughs> <laughs> of myself, man. I rhymed podcast with podcast in the opening. That's a you did. Scandal.
1: Look at you. And one tech coach again. That's two in a row.
0: I had to. I had a reputation to uphold.
1: That's true. You do.
0: Before you replace me again.
1: Replace you with what? I didn't replace you with anything. My I have figured out how to pause a recording on our Roadcaster. Uh, maybe we can get a sponsor by them.
0: Well, I'm just saying. Uh, I mean, I, those Jennings 8, I haven't listened to them. I'm just assuming you had a co-host with them.
1: No, it's just me. Oh, Just barreling through se- it.
0: I did have several people and by several I mean two, <laughs> uh, personal friends of mine that said, I just don't listen if you're not on there. And I'm like, fucking A. Yeah, that's
1: what you got to do, man. I don't, I don't blame you. I don't like him either, that's what you should have said. I, don't, I really don't yeah, like I'm him. Playing, <laughs>
0: playing. For as little as I do, I play a vital role here.
1: And the, uh, the public was kind of upset that you didn't make an appearance in episode two. They were calling for guest host status.
0: I know. People are already trying to replace me. That's some homegrown (laughs) bullshit, if you ask me. Uh, You
1: can't replace
0: me. I'm irreplaceable.
1: Chuck Ball jumped right to the top and said, if anybody's getting guest co-host, I am. I drove to Georgia to drop off beer. And that's true, Chuck. You did.
0: And we appreciated every damn sip of it. Yes, we did.
1: So let's get into this. Uh, None of the BS usual But we're going to tackle a user request of a very, very famous case in uh, the state OOH.
0: This user request came from a beast of a man that happened to whip my ass a couple times in jujitsu on his way to world titles. Uh, So when he requested it, I was like, yes, sir.
1: Yeah, whatever (laughs) you say, sir. Just don't (laughs) blow the whistle. Just don't. Just don't hurt me again.
0: I'm talking a beast of a man. But what pisses me off the most about jujitsu, though, is like this guy, for example, walks out on the mat, destroys my soul like I'm a child, and then he's like the nicest dude ever. (laughs) He's like, thanks for the match. Appreciate it, man. You're a hell of a competitor. I was like, you tapped me in 22 seconds, bro. (laughs) Like (laughs) And then, like, we're Facebook friends and message me, check all men stuff, and it's just everybody's so damn nice in that sport. It really pisses you off sometimes. <laughs> it's like it's no like Karate Kid rivalry type stuff where you just hate each other. It's just it's it's weird.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would say so. And you simulate murder, so I mean, it's the best of both worlds.
0: It is. It's very violent and very kind. It's very weird.
1: Very, it's very a mind
0: weird. Sometimes, yes, it
1: is. So we are talking about. Amy Renee Maholovic, who was born on December 11th 1978, in Little Rock, Arkansas, to parents Mark and Margaret Maholovic. She had an older brother named Jason, who was just two years older than she was. Mark moved his family to 628 Linford Drive in Bay Village, Ohio, when Amy was three and Jason was five, from Jackson, Mississippi, to work as a car salesman. Margaret would get a job at the local trading paper called the Sales Times. Amy loved horses and rode her bike everywhere. Her best friend, Christy Sabo, recalls that Amy was always riding her bike to her house and Amy and Christy were always hanging out and sleeping over at one another's houses whenever they could. Christy remembers one sleepover at her house. The pair decided to get out the old Ouija board, which is never a good idea. When you get out the Ouija board, but they did. And I don't,
0: why- I don't screw with Ouija board, nope, man. Nope, no, nope, nope.
1: But it, you know, I, it has I, an age rating it, of three plus on it.
0: And even though they're made by like Parker brothers, the same, the same people that make like monopoly and shit. It's like you can either buy monopoly and piss off your family, or you can buy the Ouija board and summon fucking demons. Yeah.
1: All for 1995.
0: Yeah. Either way, it's going to be a fun game night. <laughs>
1: So, while playing around with the Ouija board, Amy asked, quote, when will I die? And according to Christy, soon was spelled out on the Ouija board.
0: Oh, fuck that noise. Yeah. I'm out. And for that reason, I'm out.
1: (laughs) So, on Friday, October 27th, 1989, Jason and Amy ride their bikes to Bay Middle School. Ride their bikes? Bakes to Bay. We're riding Bakes to Bay.
0: Best in the biz. (laughs)
1: To Bay Middle School, just like they had most days. Amy was in the fifth grade, and Jason was in the seventh grade. During the school day, an officer with the Bay Springs Police Department, Mr. Mark Spetzel, gave a presentation to Amy's class, and it was the old Stranger Danger presentation. Amy gets out of school most days at around 2.10 p.m., and then Jason would get out an hour after her at 3.10 p.m. Jason leaves school and arrives at the Maholovic home at around 3.20 p.m. And most days he would come in seeing Amy watching TV when he gets home. But on the 27th, the house was empty. Jason calls his mom, Margaret, at work to let her know that Amy was not home. Now, Amy sometimes stayed after school for choir practice, but Margaret gets an odd feeling that something is just not right. And as she is packing her stuff up to leave work and head home, she gets another call. This time, it is from Amy. Amy tells her mom that she is home and that everything is fine. Margaret's motherly intuition, however, kicks in and she heads home immediately. Within 10 minutes, she is at the home and is greeted by Jason. Jason tells Margaret that Amy is still not home and has not been home and did not make the phone call from the house. Margaret then heads to Bay Middle School, and as she pulls in, she sees Amy's bike still in the bike rack. Panic sets in, and Margaret knows something is very wrong. She heads directly to the police station and reports Amy as missing. Officer Spetzel, the same officer that spoke to Amy's class, takes the missing child report, and I have to give huge kudos to Officer Spetzel because he immediately alerts all the officers in the area that there is a missing 10 year old girl last seen at bay middle school and before we go any further i only have one gripe about the law enforcement situation in this case but it comes much later this is by far the best case where you see law enforcement trying everything they can using every thing at their disposal to yep.
0: I mean, do you think that it's possibly the the um, because of the media coverage of this case that they really t- pulled out all the stops? Because, like I said in the opening, this is one of the most famous cases we've covered because it's been on America's Mo- uh, America's Most Wanted. It's been on Unsolved Mysteries. It's been it's got documentaries on it. I mean, it's a famous case.
1: Yeah, and True Crime Garage did I think like six episodes on it, and Nick even appeared on one of the documentaries for Discovery ID. You make a good point, but I think Spetzel is a stand up guy. He eventually becomes the chief of police at Bay Springs Police Department. But I'm not
0: saying that I'm not saying that they wouldn't have, you know, tried, but
1: it definitely helped
0: just as many boots on the ground, so to speak, unless it was they're under the gun.
1: So Mark gets home to find Margaret already home and in a full-blown panic. She explains how Amy called her at work to tell her she was home, but when she arrived home expecting to find Amy, she doesn't. Mark knows that is out of character for Amy to lie, and that something is definitely not right. So Margaret starts calling all of Amy's friends and anyone else she can think of to see if they have seen Amy. Margaret gets Christy Sabo's mom, and ask if Amy is at her house. Mrs. Sabo tells her no, that Amy is not there, but she will check with Christy to see if she knows where Amy may be. Christy tells her mom that she has not seen Amy since school let out at 2.10 p.m. Now it's all hands on deck. Mrs. Sabo takes Amy's class photo to the local NBC affiliate Channel 3 and demands that they put Amy's photo on the news. The news station tells her that they do not do that sort of thing, and Ms. Sabo is having none of it, and explains very sternly that she will not be leaving the studio until Amy's photo is aired. The station manager caves to the pressure, and Amy's photo is broadcast to the viewing audience with a missing child headline. Around 8.45 p.m., Mark and some of his friends begin to walk French Creek that leads toward Lake Erie looking for Amy. Mrs. Sabo leaves the news station and is pulling into the Mahalovics Drive. And as she does, before she even turns her car engine off, she says that she hears this guttural, primal, hysterical scream come from the home. And it was Margaret as she sees Amy's photo come across the television. So at dawn on 10 89 just one day later, approximately 30 Police officers from Bay Village have spread out around town looking for Amy. Cleveland PD sends four K-9 units. The FBI sends 35 agents. There are planes and helicopters in the air looking for Amy. The FBI heads to the Mahalovic home to interview the family. Now Mark and Margaret are separated immediately and interviewed. And the FBI and Bay Village PD quickly eliminate the family as suspects and begin to work outward from that circle in search for clues to where Amy could be. Next on the interview list is all of Amy's friends. What authorities realize is that Amy would not have just ran away. So 48 hours after the phone call to her mom, a neighbor brings his stepdaughter to the Bay Village Police Department. The young lady tells police that The day Amy disappeared, Amy had told her that she had received a phone call from a man at Margaret's job. He told Amy that her mom was getting a promotion and he wanted to get Margaret a gift to celebrate the occasion but did not know what to buy. So he asked Amy if she could meet him at the Bay Village Plaza, which is a little strip mall just up from the middle school, to help him pick out a gift. But... The man tells Amy that she needs to keep this secret as to not spoil the surprise. Immediately, investigators know that Amy has been abducted. The scary thing is that the caller stated he knew her mom and that she worked at the sales times. Along with when to call so that only Amy would have answered the phone. The ruse works and unfortunately disarms Amy. So the day that Amy disappeared, two of her friends tell investigators that they walked with her out of school around 2.04 p.m. and headed to the Bay Village Plaza. Once they arrive at the plaza, Amy heads off to a specific area like she is waiting on someone. Another witness comes forward and says that they saw the same thing, but basically they were on the opposite end of the plaza from the other two friends. Both sets of witnesses and other witnesses would state that they were basically hanging out at the Baskin-Robbins after school, Mm -hmm. talking with their friends, and see a man walk up to Amy and talk to her. Then he places his hand on the small of Amy's back and the two head toward the parking lot. The witnesses do not think anything of it and turn to keep talking to their friends and never see exactly where Amy goes. There was no struggle. And Amy and the unsub basically fade into the crowd.
0: You just say unsub. Well, you've been watching uh, criminal minds.
1: I have been, you want me to spoil some more episodes for you?
0: No, please don't. (laughs) I'm like season 12 now, so I only got a few more seasons to go, but the fact that this son of a bitch pulled this off is insane. I mean, you're probably going to cover it in a minute, but it's going to be brought out that he tried this with many girls. He made many phone calls. And And Amy was the only one he was able to convince. And he did this at the most popular hangout spot for children in that neighborhood. And he did it in broad daylight. Yes. That's some balls on this guy.
1: Yes, it is. It is some gangster sets.
0: Some evil, tiny, shriveled balls.
1: Little tic-tacs. But
0: balls, nonetheless.
1: Yes. So the FBI uses the witnesses' statements to come up with a composite sketch. Basically, you have a white male, athletically built, dark hair with a bald spot, wearing glasses and around five foot eight inches tall. A profile is quickly made of the unsub. One of the key things they quickly discern is that this man is confident and allowed Amy to call her mom at work so that in his mind, Margaret would not know Amy was in his possession. Now, Amy could have asked to call her mom or the unsub knew that Amy always called her mom when she got home, or he made Amy call Margaret. Making her call her mom would have been to gauge whether Margaret knew Amy was not home.
0: I mean, I mean that's, it, that's a good plan, too, to make sure what she knows and what she doesn't. But, God, that's just, again, just some brazen activity, man. He just don't give a fuck.
1: No, he don't. So... The unsub was a very confident, arrogant manipulator to have planned the meetup in a public space with dozens upon dozens, like Coach stated, of witnesses present.
0: Well, let me clarify something real quick. If you don't watch Criminal Minds, unsub means unidentified subject.
1: I think you're uh, uh, insulting all of our listeners' intelligence.
0: Well, I'm assuming that they know, but you're just trying to be all cool and shit, and it's not working.
1: (laughs) So, I'm just going to say from now on, the man. The man. The man. We don't
0: know he was a man.
1: Oh, he's a man. (laughs) (laughs) So, we're talking about a confident, arrogant piece of poo-poo. So, there's probably 40, 50 people at that place, and he just walks up like he has known her all his life and heads off into the parking
0: lot. I've always heard that that's. I mean, that's the key to anything. That's the key to like shoplifting or doing anything nefarious is being confident in your actions. Like, don't if you're at a Walmart and you're about to steal, uh, let's say, golf clubs or something, and you start looking around, acting all skittish, you're going to bring attention. But if you walk right in there, pick them up, and walk out like you own the place, no one's going to be the wiser.
1: Just as long as you're not wearing pajama pants and furry flip flops, I think you're okay.
0: <laughs> That's normal Walmart attire, man. <laughs> if, you're not, <clears throat> if you're not wearing those, you might stand out.
1: <laughs> you're right. You're right. So there was no struggle at all. And Amy and the unidentified subject basically fade into the crowd. So we have that whole composite sketch and the profile that comes out. And one of the key things that they quickly discern is that this man is confident beyond all belief. He also, with his brazenness, it would lead you to believe that he may have disguised his appearance. Now, Amy was lured on the ruse that her mom was getting a promotion. While investigators interview Mary's co-workers, they soon realized that Mary's, quote, promotion was really just a job status change from part-time to full-time. The working theory at the time is that Margaret was part-time and she would have had time to have lunch away from the office, and she could have bumped into the unidentified subject unknowingly. The only lead that investigators have is this phone call ruse, so they turn their attention to the ruse itself. A letter is distributed to all local schools. In the letter, they ask parents if their children may have told them of a similar call. They believe that the unsub's ruse was used previously due to the confidence in which it was delivered to Amy. What investigators find is that the summer before, in a neighboring town, a young girl reports she received an eerily similar call. The girl was babysitting her younger brother, and hears the brother answer the phone. When she asks who it is, the boy just hands her the phone. The guy on the phone says that he is an old friend of her mom's and would like to surprise her with a gift. He asks if she would help him pick out something she or the mom would like. The girl hangs up and calls her mom, asking about the call. The mom files a report with the local police department. When the girl hears of Amy's disappearance, she calls the Bay Village Police Department. So the FBI sends an agent to interview the girl. While interviewing the girl, the agent sees horse ribbons in the home and casually asks if the young lady rode, and if so, where she keeps her horses. So she tells the agent that she does ride, but it's at Holly Hill Farms. The agent follows up and heads over to the farm. As the agent is relaying the information, investigators realize that Amy also took lessons at Holly Hill Farms. Now, Jennifer Kozak would ride at Holly Hill, and Amy was also riding at the same time, and they became good friends. And she confirmed that Amy was there frequently. So the FBI descend on the farm and search the entire area, even going as far as to send divers into the ponds on the property. Now authorities start to focus in on a stable hand that was related to the owners of Holly Hill. He was described as, quote, an odd man. There were rumors that the stable hand had inappropriately touched some of the girls, leading to complaints by those girls' parents to the owners of the farm. Now, Mrs. Kozak remembers the man paying a lot of attention to Amy. He would have had access to both her phone number and Amy's phone number, along with their parents' work phone numbers. While searching the property, investigators found a pair of green sweatpants, and it was reported that the day that Amy disappeared, she was wearing green sweatpants. Now, while the search is going on at Holly Hills, two sisters call Bay Village Police and describe that they also received the same eerie phone call as the one described in the letter that went home from school. The two girls are in nearby North Olmstead, and they describe that the man said he worked with their mom, then asked their ages and their friends' ages. Creep alert, creep alert, creep alert. He went on to ask what the girls like to do. One of the girls freaks out, while the other sister recalls that the man would always call shortly after their mom would leave the house. She also remembers there was always a car parked outside the house that she did not recognize every time there was a call. She tells police that she felt like the guy was watching the house. Bay Village, in the meantime, is on high alert No kids are outside without a parent. No one participated in Trick or Treat that Halloween. And just a couple of towns over, there's an 11-year-old boy named James Renner who remembers hearing about Amy that October.
0: I've heard that name before. Did he grow up do anything important?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. The case would stick with him and become an obsession, ultimately leading to him writing a book on the case. Now, this is the same James Renner that wrote the book on the disappearance of Mar Murray, whose theory coach has swallowed hook, line, and sinker.
0: Look, I don't give a flying flip. I don't care, man. Still, I check my email every day hoping that she emails me to let me know she's alive and well. Mara Murray is alive.
1: Oh, until proven otherwise, you are correct, sir.
0: You don't pack, I mean, it's just too much coincidence. You don't pack all your shit, have a mental breakdown, run away to the forest, and then get abducted. It was planned. She's in Montreal somewhere speaking French and raising a daughter. And that's the bottom line. Probably eating a damn nice plate of poutine right now, laughing her ass off.
1: <laughs> oh, man. Good times. Good times. <laughs> The FBI would release a video of Amy giving a book report to her class to all news agencies nationwide. Within weeks, John Walsh would feature Amy's case on America's Most Wanted. November 30th, 1989, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children contact authorities in Bay Village to let them know they had received a phone call where a young girl on the other end of the line identifies herself as Amy Maholovic, stating that she was in Farmington, Maine. Then the call just ends. The call is played for Mark and Margaret, and after hearing it, they both agree that the voice sounds like Amy's. The FBI takes the call along with the video of Amy giving her book report to Quantico for comparison. Now, Bay Village Police Department contact authorities in Farmington, Maine, and give them all the information they have on Amy. Unfortunately, the FBI was not able to trace the call. Police cannot find anything that would tie Amy to Farmington other than that phone call. A few days later, the FBI analysis on the call determines that the caller is not Amy Maholovic, which is just another blow to the investigation. Coupled with, forensic testing comes back on the green sweatpants found at Holly Hills Farms, and it's determined not to be Amy's either. Both Mark and Margaret are in the news trying to keep Amy's disappearance relevant. Margaret goes on the Sally Jesse Raphael show, it's dating this story, and the Oprah Winfrey show. And at the time in 89, they were both big time competitors. And Oprah, of course, went on to success. And I have no idea where Sally Jesse Raphael is at at this time. But on December the 11th, 1989, is Amy's birthday. And. Margaret holds a birthday party and press conference that day to make sure Amy's case does not fade from the public's attention. In the newscast, Margaret pleads for Amy to come home so that she can open her presents. February 8, 1990, a jogger on Route 1181 in Ruggles Township notices what at first glance looks like clothing off the road in a field. When the jogger gets out into the field and closer to the quote, clothing, she realizes that it's a body of a young girl dressed in light green clothing. Ashland County Sheriff's Department responds to the scene and confirms that approximately 20 feet from the road, there is a young female body in the field. They immediately contact Bay Village Police and the FBI, explaining that they believe the body is that of Amy Maholovic. The scene is just over the county line in Ashland County, near the rural town of New London, Ohio. Within a few hours, it is confirmed that the body is, in fact, amy mahalovit
0: yes it's just man i'm tired of doing this podcast man too much evil in this world let's do one on like my little pony let's start like a a brony podcast or something
1: we could do a wrestling podcast and probably have a thousand episodes
0: shit man there's too many wrestling podcasts i'd listen to all of them
1: my bad man Like there's not tens of thousands of true crime podcasts.
0: That son son of a bitch, Conrad Thompson's got the market cornered.
1: Yeah, that's true. So the area in which Amy's body is found is extremely rural. The unidentified subject would have had to have lived near that area, traveled Route 1181 for work, or hunted near that area to even know it was there. Now, approximately... One thousand forty-three feet from Amy's body, authorities find what has been described as a curtain or blanket. Basically, it appears.
0: I thought they found. I thought they found a curtain and a blanket. No, it's well, been. From the documentary I saw, they had two two articles, two things. One of them looked like a curtain. One of them looked like a blanket. Well, but there were two of them.
1: What we will get into is basically. There
0: were two of them, Arlo. It was a blanket fashioned
1: into a curtain because the one what that. What does that even mean? You're jumping the shark. They
0: took. What, a, it, what do you mean? What how do you add a curtain out of a blanket?
1: Uh, you take a blanket and add fabric to the top of it so that it's got holes, and you run it through a curtain rod. There, dumbass.
0: Yeah, that checks out. <laughs> Fair enough, A, Oh, Fair enough.
1: Fair enough.
0: Fair enough. Basically. You, you caught me on the day I had some sleep, man. I'm ready to get into it. I you bet you are. are. That's what it sounds like. They're going to tell the difference. Like, hey, some bitch coach actually talked this episode. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even know I wasn't on the Jennings 8. <laughs>
1: Everything from cigarette butts to scraps of waste are collected and sent to Qualico for analysis. The area quickly becomes known as the, quote, dump site due to the condition of Amy's body. Authorities believe that she had been placed in the field within days of her abduction. The autopsy was performed by the Cuyahoga County's coroner's office at 1.40 p.m. on February the 8th, 1990, by Dr.
0: Balraj.
1: Balage Balraj. B-A-L- ball ball Raj. No, dumbass. You're putting another A in there. Ball-R-A-J. Ball-R-A-J. There you go. B-A-L-R-A-J.
0: Sounds sounds like a fucked up sex toy. Well, it could be. They get you brand new, vibrating (laughs) Ball-R-A-J. At any Adam and Eve store. (laughs) Or percent mysterious.
1: <laughs> don't think I wouldn't pimp the shit out of that. <laughs> <laughs> shit,
0: if they'll pay me, I'll buy any damn Benoit balls or whatever. That's right. That's we'll right. We'll have the Mysterious Bruce brand butt plugs or something. I don't give a damn. You'll have Sasquatch carrying a beer.
1: beer. Huh? I said, you'll have Sasquatch carrying a beer coming out of your butt.
0: Hey, whatever pays the bills and tickles my fancy.
1: At the same time. <laughs> So the autopsy states that there were multiple stab wounds of neck with perforations of cervical soft tissue and transection of left common carotid artery and left horn of the hyoid bone. That's a deep man. Ass we're cut. making
0: this is oh man, I feel bad as hell right now. We're making damn jokes about butt plugs, and the next thing you say is several surgical stab wounds to the cervix or whatever the fuck you just said. I
1: didn't say cervix, but close. It's close. Carotid Clarical. artery. Clarical. Carotid artery.
0: Carotid, man, I feel I feel really bad though. <laughs> like, we might want to reconsider. We might want to edit some on that. All right, my apologies, dear listener. Now let's get back to the gruesomeness.
1: So massive cervical soft tissue hemorrhage.
0: Well, that's what you said. Yes,
1: blunt impact to head with subscapular and subglial hemorrhage of left posterior occipital region advanced
0: yep, got that one right advanced
1: postmortem decomp and partial skeletonization of head trunk and extremities pulmonary edema and congestion postmortem wound of left lateral abdominal wall cause of death multiple stab wounds of neck with perforations of cervical soft tissue transection of left common carotid artery and left horn of hyoid bone and massive soft tissue hemorrhage
0: Jesus Christ, man. Yeah, it was brutal. That is freaking evil, man. Yes.
1: Now, the coroner's report also stated that Amy's underwear was found on inside out, leading him to suggest postmortem dressing. The cause of death leads you to a darker conclusion on why her underwear was found on the inside out. What is not found when Amy's body is discovered are the horse head earrings she was wearing the day she went missing. Also missing were her horse riding boots her denim backpack, and a binder her dad had given her with Buick Best in Class written on the front clasp. A startling and strange tie to the girl who was babysitting her brother that we discussed earlier is that seven years earlier, when the unnamed girl was 14, she was sexually assaulted. She was never able to identify her attacker, but her attacker took her earrings. They were clip-on earrings in the shape of horse heads. So authorities head back to Holly Hills Farms to interview the caretaker one more time. This time, they are able to account for most of the man's whereabouts except for a couple of hours during the afternoon. The guys are not messing around with without trying to use any means necessary to find Amy's murderer. So they administer a sodium pentothal. That's right, they give the old horse hand the truth serum. Once the sodium pentothal takes effect, they realize real quick that the caretaker was not mentally capable of meticulously carrying out Amy's abduction and murder. They clear the caretaker once and for all. So a memorial service is held at Amy's church on February 12, 1990 at 5 p.m. Mark Maholovic remembers that the drive from the family home to the church took them by the Va- Bay Village Police Department. The police department had lowered their flag to half staff as a sign of respect for Amy. Mark stated that this was something that he will never forget. With such a high profile memorial service, authorities convinced the church to allow them to install hidden cameras for the service with hopes that Amy's killer would be in attendance. Undercover FBI agents are strategically placed throughout the church and cameras are placed in the parking lot as well. Part of the profile of the unidentified subject is that he feels superior to law enforcement and will want to speak to Amy's parents to keep the, quote, thrill going. It is also believed that the unsub would have interjected himself into the investigation early on. Unfortunately, nothing is ever found at the memorial in regard to the killer actually showing up. When Amy first went missing, a central location in Bay Village was established and named the Amy Center. It was there that volunteers could come in and volunteer their time by handing out flyers, mailing flyers, etc. Authorities begin investigating anyone that may fit the profile of the unsub, and soon discover that one of the volunteers from the center had recently committed suicide by mixing dry gas and Coca-Cola. He wasn't messing around.
0: What he did? What now? Mixed gas and Coca-Cola?
1: Dry gas and Coca-Cola.
0: I'm so damn confused. I'm googling. Well, that it's shit. about time.
1: God, I was I'm like,
0: googling "Damn, it. dry." How you spell gas. G A S. According to Wikipedia, it is an alcohol-based additive gas used in automobiles to prevent water from freezing in water-contaminated fuels, and to restore combustive power to gasoline spoiled by water. It is added to the fuel tank and. Binds to the water to burn it off. Dry gas typically contains either methanol or isopropyl alcohol. Well, there you go. And now that's something you know. (laughs) Knowledge is power.
1: That is true, Coach. That is true. Now, authorities quickly realize that the day Amy's body is found, this man checks himself into a hospital voluntarily. What is more intriguing is that he resembles the composite sketch. He stated that he personally knew Margaret while at the center and was heavily involved with the search efforts for Amy in the early days of the disappearance. Investigators discovered that this man was one of the first to volunteer at the opening of the Amy Center. He makes a point to introduce himself to Margaret when she visited the Amy Center for the first time, even going as far as to offer to clean the Mahalovic home. On one occasion... When Margaret showed up to the center this man greets her with an odd embrace and would not let go he then begins mailing objects to Margaret and in one of the mailings was a letter that contained two horsehead pins he goes on to explain that one is for Margaret to wear and the other is for Amy when she is found some extremely oh, odd shit
0: yeah that's not suspicious at all
1: no when investigators conduct a search of this man's apartment They find a suicide note in the trash can. The note does not contain any reasoning or a confession. Upon further examination, investigators are unable to tie this man to any evidence that would make him the killer.
0: So you're saying he committed suicide, or did he just write a suicide note?
1: No, he did commit suicide.
0: Well, then you didn't tell them that.
1: Yes, I did. I said he committed suicide by mixing dry gas and Coca-Cola there, genius. That's why you looked up dry gas.
0: Oh, I just focused on the dry gas. I guess I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> Soon as I heard dry gas, my brain was like, what the hell is that?
1: If y'all have ever wanted to know what adult ADHD is,
0: you just <laughs> witnessed
1: it. <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> bad. Well, I barely pay attention to you anyway, so I probably misheard it or half heard it or some shit. Yeah,
1: it, you know, just some one-off bullshit
0: he's talking about. I just... All I do is turn the mic on every two two to ten minutes and go, wow, man, that sucks.
1: (laughs) Oh, you're killing me, man. You're killing me. (laughs) So the suicide note that was found details the man's troubles at work in his current relationship and his long battle with depression. Nothing in the man's background indicated that he was a pervy perverson or that he knew Margaret before volunteering at the Amy Center. So just like the other suspects thus far, this man is cleared. With the man at the Amy Center turning out to be a dead end, authorities once again head back to the ruse phone call. Another girl comes forward this time and stated that when she answered the phone one day while she was home alone, the man on the other end introduces himself as the girl's mother's boss. He wanted to pick the 10-year-old girl up one day after school, and she tells the man that she will have to get her grandmother's permission She says as soon as she mentioned grandmother's permission, the man starts trying to make her feel bad and guilty if she was the one to spoil the surprise. The girl hangs up on the man. Just a few weeks later, she states that it was when she sees Amy's picture and hears the story of how Amy received a phone call similar to the one she had received. So the FBI, along with the other authorities, go back to the drawing board with the list of girls that have received this
0: ruse phone call.
1: They re-interview every family and the most minute details of the family's lives are scrutinized.
0: I mean that just goes to show you man how evil this guy is. There's no rhyme or reason for who he's calling. He didn't have a vendetta against the Holovick family. He didn't you know it, he just he didn't give a damn who it was. He just wanted to kill somebody. Yeah, you're right. That's just evil.
1: Now the authorities ask all of the girls and their families like real detailed questions, like where do you do laundry? Where do you shop for groceries? Where do you even buy gas for your vehicles? It is through this po- process that investigators discover a commonality. Most all of the phone calls were made the summer before Amy goes missing, and it is determined that all of the girls, including Amy, had visited the Lake Erie Science and Nature Center just outside of Bay Village. It is determined that schools from all over. The area would come to the nature center on field trips throughout the school year. Now, families would frequent the center in the summertime, and all of the girls had signed the center's logbook. Now, the logbook asked for your name, address, and phone number. All of the employees at the center are interviewed, and their lives are put under the microscope. When authorities asked for the logbook, it had disappeared like the camera footage outside Epstein's cell. Yeah,
0: clearly... That's where he got the names. That's where he got the numbers. I would have interviewed the hell out of every son of a bitch that ever worked at that place.
1: Yes. Like sodium pentothal, all of them. So without the actual logbook, the link is all but speculatory, even though the Nature Center confirmed that a logbook was used and asked for the aforementioned information. Chalk it up to another dead end. Now, later on, a woman would come forward stating that she may have seen the unsub on Route 1181 late one evening. So investigators determined that the night in question is February 7th, 1990, just hours before the jogger discovers Amy's body in the field. The lady states that on the evening of February 7th, she saw a vehicle parked on the side of the road near where she believes the body was found. As she is passing by, she sees a male at the back of the vehicle with either the trunk or a hatch open. This is the first time authorities get a vehicle description. The big question is, why was the vehicle there? Remember, investigators believe that Amy was placed within that field inside 48 hours of her abduction. Was the vehicle and the man this lady sees revisiting the dump site hoping he would be seen or was he revisiting the scene to relive the murder? The lady is unable to recall details about the vehicle and the man. Police ask if she would be willing to undergo hypnotic regression. This would help pull out some details that she just cannot remember. She agrees, and during the process, she is able to describe a white male, six foot tall, 25 to 35 years of age, light complexion, dark hair, standing beside a dark colored hatchback vehicle adjacent to the field in which Amy's body would be discovered the next morning. From the description, authorities release a new composite sketch along with the new details of the man to the public. So July of 1990, a man is pulled over driving erratically in Mansfield, Ohio, which is close to New London, Ohio. And remember, New London was the closest town to where Amy's body was located, on Route 1181. The man in the vehicle looks similar to the new sketch and is clearly drunk. He shouts at the officer, quote, shoot me, I'm a bad man, end quote. The man is arrested for DWI and put in a cell. A couple hours pass and deputies walk by to check on the man and find him laying on the floor with his shoelaces fashioned into a noose
0: tied to the cot in the cell. I just find it so hard to believe that shoelaces are tough enough to take your life.
1: Well, they were a little bit tougher back in 1990, you know, we had them tougher shoelaces.
0: That must have been American made. American.
1: American. So the man is revived by the deputies, and the deputies are now interested in what the fuck is going on with this guy. It is discovered that the man in question is 22 years of age and a landscaper that works in Aurora, Ohio. Even though he looks like the new sketch, he was actually in jail on the day Amy disappeared on animal cruelty charges. Another dead end. March 31st of 1990, authorities get notified of a Cleveland, Ohio teen who was missing. 16-year-old Daya Harris was last seen getting into an unknown vehicle. On April 29th, 1990, her dismembered body is discovered near a dumpster near her home. The distance between Daya's body and the field in which Amy was found are only 20 miles apart. July 21st of 1990, 14-year-old Angela Hicks goes missing just 15 miles from Bay Village. Angela's body is found badly decomposed on August 30th, 1990, near a barn off of West River Road. Angela was last seen going to the store for a family member. Now, authorities begin to think that maybe they're dealing with a serial killer, so they begin to look for similar crimes that occurred before Amy's abduction and murder. And a case that is extremely similar to Amy's is that of April Tinsley. April was eight years old and taken from a street near her home in Fort Wayne, Indiana. She was leaving one friend's house and headed to another friend's home when witnesses see an unknown man grab April and force her into a truck. April's disappearance was on April 1st, 1988. And on April 4th of 1988, April's body is found in a ditch missing a shoe. The shoe authorities speculate was taken as a trophy. Now, April had been sexually assaulted and left in a rural area. April's killer would taunt police by leaving messages on walls near Fort Wayne claiming he did it and that he would strike again. And this sick fucker would even write messages like that on girls' bicycles out in public. Now, with no new leads and no new press releases, newspapers in the area begin to theorize publicly that this may not be the work of one man, but that of a pedophile ring. Now, this theory gains momentum when one paper recalls that the Oakland County child murders that occurred in Michigan between 1976 and 1977 were eerily similar. In this paper, the theory that the four victims between the ages of 10 and 12 were kidnapped and sexually assaulted by a pedophile ring allegedly operating in the area. On October 27, 1992, Shauna Howe, 11, from Oil City, Ohio, disappears after a Girl Scout Halloween party. Her body is found three days later near East Sandy Creek. Shauna was abducted three years to the day that Amy was abducted. Just like Amy, Shauna's body is found in a rural area and authorities believe that she was also sexually assaulted. Shauna's case leads authorities from Bay village to oil city. As news of Shauna's case makes its way to Bay village, tips begin to come in to Bay village police department about an individual who lives in Bay village, but owns a quote hunting trailer about 10 miles outside of Old City. This man in question is retired and resembles the original composite sketch. What is more damning is that this man's home is just one block from Bay Village Plaza. So authorities and the FBI bring this new suspect in for questioning and soon realize that they've talked to this guy before. In 1989, days after Amy disappears, he is interviewed due to having been seen at the plaza near the time Amy was abducted. Back in 1989, he claims not to have seen Amy. The man has a lady that comes and cleans his house weekly. The housekeeper alerts authorities back in 1989 that the man had a hard copy of the book, The Girl in the Box. Now, While reading fiction about abduction does not make you an abductor, having photos of the Bay Village Plaza inside a book about abduction makes you look guilty as fuck. On the tip from the housekeeper, authorities execute a search of the property looking for the photos only to come up empty in 1989. While they are re-interviewing the man in 1992, They ask him about this hunting trailer he
0: has outside of Oil City. I mean, having a book about an abduction with the bookmark being a picture from where a girl's abducted. I mean, that doesn't prove anything. No. It's not suspicious at all. No,
1: I mean it Am was I wrong. No, you're not wrong. Okay. I mean, it's like having a bolt action rifle and living in Dallas about the time Kennedy gets killed. <laughs> and speaking Russian, I mean. You're going to get looked at. So while they're re-interviewing this man in 1992, they ask him about this hunting trailer he has outside of Oil City. Conveniently for him, he had just sold it. See, what had happened was I needed some cash. Nah. But anyway, he did really sell it. Investigators track down the new owners and thoroughly go through the trailer, which sounds more like a small fifth wheel or a pop-up camper only to find that nothing inside this hunting trailer tied the man to Amy's murder. Shauna's killer is eventually arrested in 2006, and unfortunately, the killer has no ties to Amy's case. Fairview, Ohio, sometime in 2001, a man named Richard Allen Foley stands up during communion at St. Angela Marici, Roman Catholic Church and shouts, quote, I am Richard Allen Foley, also known as Satan, and I killed Amy Mahalovic." end quote. Unbeknownst to Mr. Foley, there were two off-duty cops in attendance and they quickly apprehend him. He is arrested on charges of inciting a panic. That's what coach is looking for on that rap sheet. I want to incite a panic. No, man, come on. You know me. Yeah, I know you, dog. I know you, dog. So investigators search Foley's home and find dozens of writings that contain incoherent gibberish and ramblings about Satan. It is found during this search that the man was actually a schizophrenic and had not taken his medicine in several days. Unfortunately, Mark and Margaret Mahalovic ultimately divorce. Amy's death would be the final straw in an already failing marriage. Sometime in 1992, Margaret is diagnosed with lupus and moves to
0: Cleveland's east side. Trouble? And then your freaking only kid gets murdered? I mean, your only daughter gets murdered? It's like, God, I mean, how, I couldn't stay in the same house. I couldn't...
1: Yeah, they were both sick at each other, looking at each other. Yeah, it would
0: it. just be way too hard.
1: I mean, And unfortunately, this is a high percentage of couples do not make it after a huge tragic event like this. But sometime in 1992, after she moved to Cleveland's East side, Mark and Jason would remain in Bay village. And four years later, Mark is set up on a blind date with a woman named Georgette. Georgette and Mark would ultimately get married several years later. And in 1999, Margaret moves to Las Vegas to be closer to her mother. In late 2001, Margaret passes away from complications from lupus at the age of 54. So now we get into theories. And on August the 8th, 2006, James Renner began a blog chronicling his investigation of Amy Mihaljevic's murder. Later that year, he publishes the book, Amy, My Search for Her Killer. Now, in his book, he theorizes that the unsub was already at the plaza waiting for Amy before she ever arrives. He believes that the unsub observes Amy for a few minutes, approaches her, casually whispers something to her to confirm to Amy that he was the man that she had spoken to on the phone, and then gently places his hand on the small of her back to guide her to where he is parked. Now, Renner does not believe that the unsub was parked in the main parking lot. He believes that he was actually parked Between the plaza and, at the time, an auto body shop that would have been to the left of the plaza. Between the plaza and the auto body shop was a small vacant area that the unsub could have used to park so that all he had to do was get Amy in the car and he can be in traffic headed away within seconds. Once he gets Amy in the car, Renner believes that the unsub has roughly 50 minutes to get Amy to a predetermined location he can control while not tipping his hand that there was never going to be a gift bought. The unsub stops within a couple miles of the plaza and has Amy phone her mom at a payphone. Renner believes that as they travel farther and farther away from town, Amy would realize that she is in trouble and tries to get out of the car at either a stop sign or a rural flashing red light. He believes this is when and how Amy suffers the blunt force trauma to the head. The unsub then gets Amy to the predetermined place, sexually assaults her, then redresses her and decides that he must kill her and stabs her in the neck, cruelly watching her bleed out. The unsub then wraps Amy in the, quote, curtain, and places her body in the trunk of his vehicle. After sunset, the unsub places Amy in the field off of Route 1181. And if you pull up a Google map of the area of where Amy's body was found, it offers a very good field of view in both directions. But basically, the man would have seen any headlights a mile or more before the car could even discern someone in the field, so he would have plenty of time to hide. Now, James would go on and do some more investigative work and come up with his favorite theory, and that is that while at the Nature Center, Amy comes in contact for the first time with her killer. In 2008, Renner is contacted by a former student of a teacher from Amherst Middle School. You guessed it, in Amherst, Ohio, which is roughly 20 miles southwest of Bay Village. Renner begins to dive into the teacher's background and finds that he would always give his students extra credit if they went to the Lake Erie Nature and Science Center, the same nature center this teacher volunteered at on the weekends and during the summer. This teacher taught middle school science, and his classroom was full of stuffed animals. Not teddy bears, but taxidermied. He would even breed mice in his classroom and when the population would get too high, he would take the coals to the nature center to feed them to the snakes. When police interviewed this teacher, he denies ever knowing the nature center existed. Renner has a dozen of the teacher's former students that say they actually saw him at the nature center outside of school as well as corroborating what the first former student told Renner about receiving extra credit. Former co-worker at Amherst Middle is the one that Renner would glean the information about the mice from. Remember, this man had denied, denied, and denied ever being at the center or volunteering at the center. Renner believes that the unsub, which he now refers to as the teacher, became infatuated with Amy Mihaljevic. He goes on to state that if you look at a picture of some of the other girls who received the same eerie phone ruse calls, that Amy received, you can tell they all look similar. Now, the teacher was living in New London, just two miles from where Amy's body was found. Allegedly, the science teacher is a dead ringer for the composite sketch. So Renner throws caution to the wind and heads to Amherst Middle School, where he learns that the science teacher had been investigated on two separate occasions for inappropriate relationships with students. Like a bloodhound, Renner tracks the man down and discovers he is currently living in Key West, Florida. So Renner hops on a plane, flies down to Key West, and spends two days in Key West looking for the teacher. He even has in his possession a flyer with the man's picture on it, and he is asking people in the streets and business owners if they have ever seen this man. Renner claims that no one has seen him, and it is driving him crazy and that he is driving around Key West roughly 30 minutes before he has got to leave for Miami to catch his flight home to Ohio, when at a stop sign, the teacher walks right in front of his car.
0: Coincidence right there, that's insane.
1: Yeah. And not letting a grand divine opportunity pass by, Renner hops out of the car and runs after him. He calls the teacher by name to get him to stop. The teacher asked if he knows Renner, and Renner says, no, you do not know me. He then asked the man, what if I told you I had a picture of you at the Lake Erie Nature and Science Center with one of your students? This is a huge gamble and bluff because authorities had previously told Renner they could never link the teacher to the nature center. Renner claims that the teacher pauses for a moment and looks him dead in the eye and says, quote, I never told the police I was not there. I only told them I do not remember being there, end quote. So Renner follows his question up with, quote, what else do you not remember? The teacher responds with, I'm done talking to you, and turns and walks away. Not suspicious at all? No, not at all. Renner runs back to his car, gets to Miami in time, makes his flight, and basically hands every bit of information that he has collected on the teacher over to Bay Village Police and the FBI. He believes that authorities do not believe that they have enough solid evidence to arrest the teacher who allegedly still resides in Key West. So 25 years after Amy's murder, DNA evidence is resubmitted to the FBI in hopes of getting a break. The curtain that was found 1,043 feet from where Amy's body was located is also reanalyzed. Some of the fibers that were unidentifiable back in 1989 turn out to be hairs from a dog. That dog hair is a match to the Mahalovics' dog. They also find hairs that match Amy's hairbrush at her home. So they conclusively tie her body being wrapped in that curtain. Now, we've talked about this curtain from the very beginning of this case. But what you must realize is that the FBI and the Bay Village Police Department did not release any information about the curtain or the fact that it was found the same day as Amy's body until 2014. And that's the big black eye in the investigation. There was a huge press conference in 2014 where Bay Village Police Chief and the retired FBI agent that has worked Amy's case from day one present the curtain to the public, asking if anyone remembers seeing an old, quote, odd curtain that may have been in a barn, a travel trailer, a hunting cabin, etc. Other than fibers from the curtain sent off for analysis, no details of those findings have been released that I could find. One thing that keeps hope alive in the Amy Maholovic case is that on July 22, 2018, the Star newspaper publicizes that Amy Tinsley's murder had been solved through the use of familial DNA testing. This testing led authorities to John D. Miller of Grable, Indiana. He was just 29 at the time of April Tinsley's murder. Upon his arrest, he confessed to the horrific crime. April's killer was originally locked as a suspect in Amy's case, but Miller had a rock-solid alibi, according to investigators, on the day that Amy was abducted. Investigators would go on record stating that the familial DNA profiling that led to Miller's arrest would not help in solving Amy's case. This would lead you to believe that there were no foreign DNA found on Amy's clothes or the curtain. 15,000 leads since 1989 have been looked through and investigated by authorities. The investigators have stated they only need one piece of evidence to make an arrest. Again, this would lead you to believe that they have a prime suspect, but there is no concrete evidence in their current possession to tie that individual to Amy. 2019 marked the 30th anniversary of Amy Mihaljevic's abduction and murder. In January of 2019, a woman came forward and identified her ex-boyfriend as a suspect in Amy Mihaljevic's murder. According to a sworn affidavit from a Bay Village detective, the woman told police at the time of Amy's disappearance, the man and his former girlfriend lived less than a mile and a half from the shopping center where Amy was last seen alive talking to an unidentified man. In the affidavit, police said that the man worked in Bay Village at the time and had family living there, including a niece in the same grade as Amy. Court records show police also said the woman told investigators that the man did not come home the night Amy was abducted. Police said the woman, quote, indicated it was unlike the man to disappear and not come home overnight. Investigators said the woman stated that her boyfriend did call her around 10 p.m. the night of the abduction and ask if she was aware of the news coverage of Amy's disappearance. A detective also said the woman told him that she believed she traveled with her former boyfriend to Ashland County on one or more trips. Now, according to investigators, the man's appearance in late 1989 was, quote, consistent with one of two major suspect composites obtained via witness interviews, end quote. In the affidavit, investigators said in May of 2020, two witnesses who saw Amy talking with a man at the shopping center the day of her abduction picked the man in question's picture out of a photo lineup as the person they recalled seeing Amy Maholovic talking to the day she was last seen alive. And now we get to the car Police said gold fibers were found on Amy's clothing after her body was discovered in Ashland County. A unnamed detective told a Cuyahoga County judge that the man in question drove a gold Oldsmobile with a tan interior in 1989 and 1990. According to court records, the FBI agent noted a gold Oldsmobile registered to the man drove through an intersection near where Amy's body was dumped on the day she was discovered. How the hell they did that before traffic cameras, I don't know. A Bay Village detective wrote, quote, investigators have not been able to show any reason or reasons why the man should have been near Amy Mahalovic's body recovery site on February 8, 1990. In November of 2019, just days after the 30th anniversary of Amy's abduction, the man in question walked into the Bay Village Police Department and talked to investigators over the course of two days. In a sworn affidavit, the detective said the man, quote, made very suspicious statements, end quote. According to court records, those included that 1989 and 1990 was, quote, a dark period in his life, and that the man indicated that he may have met Amy's mother, Margaret, in a bar. The detective wrote that when asked if he ever called Amy Maholovic prior to her abduction, the man answered, quote, I could have, and that it could have been a wrong number that I called.
0: So he admitted to making the phone call?
1: half acidly. yeah. Huh. Police said when they asked the man... And you're if, telling
0: me they still can't solve this case?
1: Yeah. And this was February of 2021 when I found this information. Police said when they asked the man if Amy was in his car, he said, I don't believe so. But when they asked again if it was possible, they said the man said, okay, but I don't know what the situation would have been. I mean, he's basically confessing right there is what it sounds like. The detective said the man agreed it was possible that his DNA would be on a curtain found near Amy's body, but said, I did not put it there.
0: So he basically makes a confession and then also admits that his DNA is probably present.
1: Yeah. Did not make an
0: arrest? No. They didn't put him in, right in nope, there?
1: Nope. Nope. And nope. And he goes on to say that his DNA would be on Amy's body, quote, if someone planted it on her. Investigators said the man agreed to a DNA swab and a polygraph test, Police said the results of the polygraph test were deception indicated, but we all know that you can't turn that into a warrant for arrest and you can't put it in court. The detective also told a judge that the man did not show up the next day as planned to sign paperwork allowing police to search a storage unit he owned. According to court records, police obtained a warrant, searched the storage units where, quote, officers seized evidence, end quote. There's no mention of what that evidence was or what police took out of that storage shed. Police did say that the man was currently homeless and living in his car. And that is the last thing I could find on the Amy Maholovic case. And unfortunately, it is still unsolved. But it sounds like they have a very good prime suspect, but they just don't have that one piece of information that would tie him to the crime. And to be honest with you, before I found the information about this guy, the teacher was my favorite suspect because it just all seemed to fit with the nature center and how Renner explained that the girls looked alike. I couldn't ever find pictures, so you have to take his word on the fact that they do look similar to Amy. But he did have the means... And was at the scene and just so happened to volunteer at a nature center where the logbook comes up missing when people start asking questions. Again, this was a deep dive into the Amy Mahalovic story. And hopefully, we did this case justice and hopefully, we get an update soon about them capturing her killer. If you would like to hear more in depth, analysis of this case like I said True Crime Garage did several episodes on it I believe Nick and James actually did an episode together around the time he released his book coach you got your recommendation
0: well yeah I'm going to recommend Tennessee Volunteer Football if you jump on the bandwagon now when we win the national title you might just be convincing your friends you was always a fan
1: (laughs) Oh, uh, unfortunately for both of our teams, I think, oh, Papa Nick's got the best team in the country. Well, I'm going to recommend that you either read James Renner's book or hop on Investigative Discovery. And it is the Lake Erie Murders mini series. The first three episodes of season one cover Amy's case and I believe the last three are the Oakland child murders. But Coach saw a documentary on the subject, and so there's plenty of information out there if you are looking to dive deeper down this rabbit hole. I will warn you, though, it will become an obsession. I had flashbacks of the Mara Murray case where I laid awake at night listening to the podcast about missing Mara Murray. So, without anything else, Coach... You got anything else? Oh, you know I don't. Deuces.